pray with me, Father in heaven, uh, that is true that your love can never fail us. So I pray now as we open the scripture that we would know deeply that love and have great confidence that your love would never fail. Fill us with that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, as you're seated. Turn, please, to Acts in chapter 5, please. I must confess, I'm just a touch teary, but that's okay. It has nothing to do with you. It has nothing even to do with this worship service particularly, but my dear little Gracie's off in a few moments to catch a plane to live with her sister this summer, which I think is wonderful, but I just said goodbye. So forgive me for still crying when my children leave me. But, uh, but I'll be fine. Just, just relax. It'll be okay. She's done this before. They all do it to us at one time or another. And it's good, actually. It's not necessarily cheaper, but it's good. Um, So, hear the word of God. Acts chapter 5 and verse 12. This is a long passage, so bear with me, but enjoy. Hear the word of God. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem, and more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them, The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest uh, rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. And when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of Israel and sent to prison uh, to have them uh, brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the door. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We're strictly charged... We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And as we are 
witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to, uh, to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For, be, for before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple, from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Now, you know, as we've been working our way through the book of Acts, I've been asking the question, at least from time to time, and that question is, why is this here? In other words, why is this particular incident described? Um, as I mentioned last Sunday, uh, Luke, the writer here, Luke is, is laying out about 30 years of church history, more or less, in about 30 pages. And so that isn't much space, many pages, in order to lay out such a long period of time, really, if we're ever going to get any detail. And so clearly, by the Holy Spirit, Luke is being selective. And so it's important for us to sit up and take notice and realize this isn't just the ramblings of a man. This is very important stuff. This is by the Holy Spirit, through this author Luke, uh, specific events of which he could have chosen, we assume, many, but he chose this one. And so why this one? And I suppose that all of this in some way, shape, or form is consistent with Luke's purpose. Remember, he lays this out to a man by the name of Theophilus. If you go back to Acts chapter 1, in fact, if you go back to Luke chapter 1, you find that, that Luke is writing to this man Theophilus. In Luke, which is his first account, he's speaking about the things that Jesus began to do and to teach. And thus we infer from that that as we read through Acts, he's continuing, Luke is, to tell us what Jesus is continuing to do and teach. But since Jesus has ascended, so he's not physically present as he was in the gospel accounts, as Luke was writing that out, then Jesus is continuing to do and teach through his apostles as they are filled with his spirit. All right? So, so that's governing him. I suspect that idea is in his mind. The Spirit of God has put that in his mind. And as he's thinking through what to put in, what not to put in, he's thinking through what will describe to Theophilus what Jesus is continuing to do. But you remember that Jesus laid out for his disciples that they were to be his witnesses. His witnesses in Jerusalem where they were at that moment when he gave them that command, that, that promise really that they would be his witnesses. They were in Jerusalem, but he says, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria that is in the surrounding area, but really to the ends of the world, to the ends of the earth. 
And so the drama here that Luke is laying out for us, what I, I don't want us to miss as we're reading through this page by page and all of that, is, is that this gospel, this witness of Jesus, is going to go to the ends of the earth. And so the question, even as we're in chapter 5, is will it? I mean, that's, that's where our mind should be as we're thinking through this. Now, some of you have cheated and you've read this before. But if you weren't, if you knew, if you were reading this in the beginning, you would say, is this going to really work? I mean, who are these guys, these disciples? They're filled with the Spirit. Okay, I don't really understand that in the opening chapter so much. But I know these guys from what I've been reading through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, and I don't know that I would be as confident as Jesus uh, to say that this gospel, this witness of him, is going to go to the ends of the earth. Are they really going to be able to make that? And so that's really the drama that's being set up here. And so, really, in our own minds, the question is, will it, will it happen? And this is important for us because this is our drama as well. This is our life as well. We have the same calling as these apostles. We have the same calling as these early disciples. Meaning that we, too, are to be witnesses of Jesus. That's to be our identity. And that witness of Jesus through us, if you will filled with his spirit, is to go to the ends of the earth. And so the question remains, do we have confidence that that's going to take place? Do we have the boldness for that to happen? Are we really going to be a part of this mission, this witnessing of Jesus to the very ends of the earth? Will this really work? Will this really happen? And it's a big question too, because opposition mounts almost immediately. Now, this opposition shouldn't be a great surprise to anyone. We've seen opposition to God from the very beginning, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. You know, just as the Bible begins to unfold, we see opposition to God uh, by way of this evil one, Satan, who comes in the form of this, this serpent in order to, and at that moment in time, successfully tempt Adam and Eve to go their own way rather than God's way. And so we see the opposition to God on the earth take place even then. And then, then we see it as we read throughout the scripture. We see it in the disobedience of human beings, how human beings dishonor God, even amongst his own people, as he calls them, Israel, and even the other nations of the world, to dishonor God. We see this opposition even as Jesus comes on the scene. We see it through Herod, and his obsession to kill this baby, Jesus. So much so that he creates a bloodbath by killing all these little boys in the hopes that perhaps one of them would be this king who was born, this Jesus. We see it as Jesus begins his ministry. This Satan, the very one from Genesis chapter 3, takes him into the wilderness and tempts him, opposition against God, to turn away even from his father, to turn away even from his calling, to turn away from even who he is. We see this opposition mount in religious leaders who come against Jesus and mock him and question him and try to trick him. We see this opposition in the lack of belief, the lack of faith in him, the lack of trust in him as he goes around. We see it uh, through this Satan and demons possessing people coming against Jesus. We see it as Jesus, even among Jesus' own band of followers, 
in Judas who betrays him. We see it in this trial that's filled with trumped up charges against Jesus. We see it as they kill the very son of man. So we see this opposition take place. In fact, Jesus told his disciples that this opposition wouldn't stop. He told them that since you're related to me, they're, they're going to hate you just like they've, they've hated me. So this opposition is there. And we see the opposition even in the early church. I mean, things start out really nicely. It appears, uh, just like Jesus said, wait, he said, in Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. You'll receive power. You'll be my witnesses. We see then on this day of Pentecost that the Holy Spirit does come upon them. They do receive power. They are his witnesses. There are even people there from the ends of the earth, Luke tells us, who hear the gospel in their own language as the Spirit is at work. And then then Peter preaches and he lays out the gospel and and people say to them, what should we do? And he says, repent and be baptized. That is to say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll receive forgiveness of sins. And you receive the promise of the Father, this promised Holy Spirit. And the scripture says about 3,000 uh, were saved on that, on that day. And then community develops and all seems well. A community of people who are committed to, to learning. So they submit themselves, devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. They pray together as we might suspect that they fellowship together so much so in love that they meet the needs of others by way of sacrifice of their own stuff. Uh, and, and they break bread together in various ways, including this communion, this time of remembering Jesus. And the power of the gospel is among them. So much so that Peter and John are walking to a temple. They see a lame man. They command him in the name of Jesus to rise and walk. And he does. And then the opposition begins to rear its head. Because of what they did in the name of Jesus. Just like Jesus said, the more closely you're identified with me, the more the opposition will come towards you. They hated me, they'll hate you. And so, in the midst of this, the opposition begins to rise. The religious leaders of all people come against him. Uh, This group called the Sadducees. uh, This group that didn't believe in a resurrection who didn't believe in the miraculous, who didn't believe in angels, who didn't believe in demons, who who believed this life was pretty much it. And yet they were the priestly group, the high priests in Israel in that day. And they were very powerful. And so they have Peter and John arrested. And you remember they commanded Peter and John not to preach anymore in the name of Jesus. Of course, Peter and John said, sorry, uh, we've been commanded by God to preach in the name of Jesus. This is all we know. This is life. And so whatever you say is whatever you say, but we're going to go on and we're going to continue to preach in the name of Jesus. And that was sort of their warning. Their law said that they needed to come in and give them a warning. And they gave them that warning and they warned them very sternly not to uh, continue to preach in the name of Jesus. And so they go back and they meet with their, their friends and they, and they pray. And the prayer is basically, give us boldness so that we can go out and do what we've just been commanded by the religious authorities not to do, that is, preach in the name of Jesus. But we're going to do this because we've been commanded by Jesus to do this. And this is who we are. We are his, we are his witnesses. And then again, we get this, this sense that things are good in, in the church. The, Luke tells us that they are of, of one heart and, and one soul. That great grace was given to them. That power, the very power of God was evident among them. That people were coming to faith and believing. 
And then again, that they were loving each other with this wonderful love, so much so that this man, Joseph, whose nickname was Barnabas because he was such a helper and encourager, had sold a piece of property and given it all so that people in the community would have their needs met, so the poor uh, would have their needs met. And then we see the opposition take place, not from outside, but from inside. This couple, Ananias and Sapphira, they pretend to love. Because you see, if there's one thing the evil one hates, it's a company of people loving one another in the name of Jesus. And so he comes and he infiltrates right then and he says, I'm going to make this love insincere. I'm going to make this love uh, uh, disingenuous. I'm going to make this love hypocrisy. This, group, this, this couple is going to say that they love so much so that they're going to be just like Barnabas and sell their property and give it all but they're going to lie about that. The question is, does that thwart the witness of Jesus? I mean, the opposition has already come and, 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 and threatened Peter and John not to preach in the name of Jesus. The question is, will that thwart the witness of Jesus? It didn't. But now this, will it thwart it? Will the community become a community of hypocrisy? Will the community become a, a community that that doesn't love sincerely and honestly. And God says, no, that won't thwart me. That won't thwart this witness. And he intervenes very directly. And Ananias and Sapphira die. And you're thinking, well, that's going to put an end to the club. I mean, that's going to put an end to things. <laughs> and Luke is very honest to say there was great fear that, that happened. Of course there was. And even since there's a group of people that were watching the disciples and they didn't really want to join because... But then he goes on to say, but yet many more came to faith. Many more believed. God says, I'm not going to be thwarted. When purity happens in the life of my people, it doesn't stunt the growth. It doesn't stunt it, but it attracts. And more will come. That won't thwart. But then as we... In, in fact, as we read, and I'll just, I won't spend long here. I'm go, we're not going to be done till like quarter after, so just relax. But uh, we sang way too long. Um, <laughs> that's not true. Uh, but, the, um, but we see what's going on here. The people were, were so amazed at this band of followers of Jesus that... Uh, well, I'll just read it again. Verse 14. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least a shadow might fall on some of them. Now, we're not told at all that anybody was healed because of that. We just said this is what they did. Um, uh, so, so we don't know the effect of this. What we're told this is so that we'll realize that this was this group of believers, which now was numbered into the tens of thousands, probably, or thousands at least, we know for sure, that they were well known. And, and, and their work was well known. And the blessing that they could be to people was well known. And so people saw Peter and knew of him and said, let's just even get close to him. So again, we don't know what really happened in the midst of this, whether anybody was healed or not by coming into the shadow of Jesus. Uh, you know, don't find your favorite preacher and then try to get in his shadow. 
Uh, that's not the point here. But the point is, this was a well-known group of people. Their work was known to the whole community. Uh, verse 16, the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits. And they were all healed. And then the opposition raises its head again. And you get the sense that the Sadducees, who were the head of the ruling body in Israel over the Jews, that they, they began to think, well, wait a minute, we've told these people not to do this in the name of Jesus, and look, the name of Jesus is getting even more attention than ever before, and so we can hold them in contempt of court. We've told them already not to do this, and so now they've had their warning, so now we can come against them. And so they have the, all the apostles of Jesus arrested, it appears, at this point in time, and they bring them in. And the question then is, will this thwart the witness of Jesus? Well, no, an angel comes and opens up, it opens up the prison and says, get out. And then like every good angel, he covers his tracks. He locks the doors back up as they leave. Uh, I don't know if they learned that in Angel 101, you know, prison break, you know. Uh, but, but, but he does that. He, he locks, up, locks up the doors after them and, and they go out. But notice, they weren't freed to go hide. They weren't freed so they would be, quote unquote, safe. They were freed so they could go back and be who they were, which is witnesses of Jesus. So they went back to the very same place that got them arrested in the first place, and they began to preach. That's why they were freed. And so at that moment in time, we breathe easy and say, good, the witness of the gospel is not being um, thwarted here by this arrest. But then they're rearrested, and they come back in front of this group of people that had them arrested in the first place, and and, and, and things look pretty grim. I mean, these Sadducees are very angry with the disciples. They're saying, your teaching has filled the whole city. And I think the guys are going, yeah, phew, this is really good, isn't it? And then they said, and, and you're actually accusing us of killing Jesus. You, you're actually bringing his blood on our heads. Which, by the way, is exactly what they said when Pilate said... We'll release Jesus. And they said, no, his blood is on our heads. So now they were covering up all of that. But be that as it may, if you're reading along, you're getting a little nervous. You say, well, they had one prison break. I don't know how many angels there are that can pull that off. And so I don't know what's going to happen now. And so then the question is, well, is the, is the preaching of the gospel, is the witness of Jesus thwarted? And the answer is no. Why? Because Peter goes on to preach right there to these, this particular group of people. Notice verse 27. And when they brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you are and you fill Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But, people and, but Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. And then he goes on to put his life completely in jeopardy as he does exactly to them what they've commanded him not to do. He says, uh, The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior, as prince and savior as it is in some versions, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we're witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Now, if I'm reading along here, I pause a minute and I just wonder, now what? 
Are they going to be destroyed? Are they going to be killed? I mean, they've just now come against the rule of the ruling body. What are they going to do? And then this respected, honored, loved teacher, Gamaliel. He was a great teacher of the law, very well known in Jerusalem. We, we know him because he was the teacher of someone close to us whose name started out being Saul of Tarsus. So this Gamaliel begins to talk. And I don't know who it is in your family, who it is in your circle of friends, who it is in your business, who it is in your whatever, who has the kind of authority, the kind of honor, that when they stand up to talk, everybody listens. That's the way Gamaliel was. This was the kind of thing that, 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 that really caught everybody's attention. And so notice what he says. Verse 34. Or verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Verse 34. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. And then he goes on to discuss a couple of uprisings that didn't amount to anything. And then verse 38 he says, So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it'll fail. But if it is of God... You'll not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found to oppose. To, you might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. Now, why is that there? Well, I'll share in a minute. I don't think it's because this is particularly a good advice for people to follow in evaluating whether Jesus is the Christ. It's there so Luke can say to us, "Look, I can raise up angels. I can give." disciples clarity of mind and heart and give them what to say in the midst of opposition I can even raise up someone in their midst someone who's with them someone who's like them some them someone who's a part of them and I can put words on his lips that will convince them to let the gospel go forth so don't worry it won't be thwarted nothing can thwart me I will give Men who have proven themselves to be cowards, courage. I will send angels, if need be, to set people free. I will even raise up the most respected one among them to speak a word on my behalf that they will understand. So just relax. If what you're worried about, and this is what we should be worried about, what you're worried about is whether or not the gospel is going to go forth, whether or not the witness of Jesus is going to go, whether or not you and I are going to be able to fulfill this calling of being witnesses of Jesus. Luke is saying, God is saying, relax, it'll happen. Nothing can stop you. Because God is at work. Through angels, in your own hearts, even in the midst of the opposition. Now just quickly as an aside, take this uh, advice that Gamaliel gives to these people and basically it's this. Basically it's, 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 it's don't come against the disciples of Jesus right now because stuff like this has happened before and, and, and it's never really amounted to anything because here we still sit 
as the Sanhedrin, as the rulers of Israel. So, so let's not worry ourselves so much about this. There's some people that we could really get, really get angry at us if we push this too far. So let's just relax because everything, we've had this before. But let's just, just think, if it is of God, then we can't oppose it anyway. So we'd be fools to oppose it if it's God, and we'd be fools to oppose it if not. So in an agnostic kind of way, let's just wait this one out. Now on the one hand, what Gamaliel was saying was very true, that is. If it's of God, it will succeed. No one can oppose it. And he's also true in saying, if it has human origins, it will fail. But please, if you're agnostic towards Christ, don't allow this to be your, don't allow this to govern your evaluation of the Christian faith. Because the question is, how long will you wait? Your whole life? Has now been long enough, 2,000 years? But see, there's a lot of things of human origin that last a long time. Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, atheism. These things have lasted a long time. Some would argue longer than even the Christian faith. And so what Gamaliel was saying was very helpful to them, very helpful for the cause, but not a good way to evaluate whether Christianity is true. Because you see, he was standing right in the very face of God. For God had already given him everything he needed to know to say that Jesus was the Christ. And he was saying, no, uh, I'm not going to look at that. He really should have called his people together if he was really going to be speaking in this sense on behalf of God. He really should have said, we really need to think about this. I mean, think about our prophets. Think about our traditions. Think about our ceremonies. Why all this killing? Why all this sacrifice? Why all these priests? Why these kings? Why all of this? Who is this Jesus? How does he relate to all of that? Those are the kinds of things that he should have been thinking about. And he should have been saying things like, remember, we did kill him. But remember, there's a lot of people who say they saw him alive. And this lame man, how do we account for that? He should have been saying, shouldn't we really think about this? Shouldn't we really listen to them? You see, there's so many of us these days that want to say, I'll believe in Jesus if God will do thus and such. I'll believe in this Christianity if God will show me in this particular way. And bear in mind that God isn't beholden to our particular standards and our particular ways. He's the Lord. And he knows the very right way to lay all of this out. And the very right way in order to lay all of this out, all that we need to know is begins in Genesis and works the way through and comes into the person of Christ and all that he's done. And that is sufficient. Don't wait it out. Don't say, well, you know, if Grace EPC is successful, then I'll believe. You'll be dead. The point being here from Luke is that the gospel will not, cannot be thwarted. Because you see, when God so works in a, peop- in a person's life, when God so works in a people's lives, the life of a people, a community of people, uh, when they know that Christ is their life, 
then they cannot be defeated. Some people say, my work is my life. Do you realize that a day will come when you will not have work? A day will come. The market may say, this work that you like to do is no longer valued by the community. Therefore, you're out of work. And if your work is your life, you'll die. Some people say, my children are my life. Trust me, your children will leave you. <laughs> they will go. They will not be your children in the same sense that they've been your children. Now, you, some of you are going, that's great news. Uh, and it isn't bad. But, but, but if your children are your life, when your children become adults and they leave you in that sense, what happens to your life? Some people say, my possessions are my life. What happens if, when? You lose your possessions. You'll always be insecure thinking, they may leave me my possessions, and if my possessions are gone, my life is gone. Some people say, my beauty is my life, my attractiveness. Now, not too many people say that publicly, but what happens when you turn 55? <laughs> and you look in the mirror and you see your dad. Um, <laughs> all right? Your life is gone if, if that was... If that was your life, you see. When Christ is your life, then you always have life. And you see, the very point of life, the thing that we always have, the one that we always have, the purpose that we always have, the reason that we always have is to show Christ to be faithful, to show Christ to be great, to glorify him. And you see, that's what's on the mind of these apostles. That's why they can't be defeated. That's, why God is, that's what God has worked into them, that they're witnesses of Christ. And so if they're in jail, they're witness of Christ. When they're out, they're witness of Christ. But there's a little thing here that just pops up that surprises at least me as I'm reading through. Because I'm tracking really well now with Luke. I'm going, okay, they're arrested. The angel releases them. They're re-arrested uh, so they get to, to, to proclaim the gospel in front of the, the, the authorities. And then Gamaliel speaks up and they agree with him. And then Luke says, and they were beaten. And I'm saying, wait a minute. <laughs> That's not how this is supposed to go. It's supposed to go. So then they were freed to go. They were beaten. How could that be? I suspect that one of the things that motivated Gamaliel in his, his deliberations is that he knew something about God. I mean, he knew something about the Old Testament scripture. He was a teacher of the law. And though, as a Pharisee, he might have had things a little mixed up and, and, and things not quite so straight, he knew some things about God. For instance, that he knew that God could not be thwarted, that he was the sovereign one, and no one could come against him and succeed. He knew that. He would also know that the people of God were the very apple of God's eye, his very treasured possession as he puts it, as Moses puts it, as God puts it. Treasured possession, everything is God's, but his people are his very treasured ones. The very apple of his eye. That's how the scripture puts it. And you know the apple of your eye, the most sensitive place. If a little sand gets in your eye, what happens? You know it. Your whole body knows it. Walking down the beach, a little sand gets in your eye, what happens? Your feet stop your hand immediately goes to your eye. 
Your eye begins to water. Your nose runs in sympathy. I mean, everything, everything is drawn to, 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 to your eye at that point in time. And, and, you know, it's horrible if you're driving and get something in your eye because, because you stop driving in a sense. I mean, you stop paying attention because you know that there's something in your eye. And it could be the littlest speck, but it doesn't matter because you're so sensitive right there. And Gamaliel would know you have to be careful. If we touch that which God loves, if this is of God, then we're in big trouble. So why they would beat them, I, I, don't, I don't know. But he would also know that God fights for his people. And so be careful to go against God. God fights for his own, his own people. You'd remember the story of Moses. and Remember when they were at the Red Sea and, and, and God says to Moses, you know, stick out your rod here, the sea will open, I, I will fight for you. No doubt he would remember uh, the story of David and Goliath. And as David stands before Goliath, David stands this little guy in front of this huge giant and he says, Goliath, you don't know what you're doing here. Because you come with me in a sword and a shield and a bow, and I come, I come at you in the name of the Lord of hosts. You know, God's the one who will fight for his people. Uh, Jehoshaphat, as he's, as he's standing before all of the enemies, gets the word from the prophets. The battle's not yours, Jehoshaphat. It's God's. He will fight. He will fight for you. Nehemiah, as he stands to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem, and, 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 and the enemies come against him, uh, he tells the people, grab your sword, God will fight for you. Gamaliel would know all of that. That God would fight for his people. My question is, if that's true, how in the world is God fighting for the apostles when he has them beaten? And the question is, well, what's the battle? What battle is being fought? Is it for their well-being? Is it for their health and happiness? Is it, is it, is it for their ease of life? You see, we have a tendency to think about the Christian faith very often as to how it can benefit me, how it can make my life better, happier, easier, all those kinds of things. You know, God, give me a good marriage, good kids, a good, satisfying and fulfilling job, good health, and, and then, then, then that means Jesus is Lord and everything is fine. But the battle, as these apostles knew it, somebody get that, the battle as... as um, as God knew it, was the faith and the witness of Christ. And so now what he's saying is, if they arrest you, if they rearrest you, if they beat you, don't worry. The witness will go on. The testimony of the gospel will go forth. Because even though these disciples were beaten, what happened next? Notice. Verse 40. And when they, had, uh, uh, when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing <clears throat> that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Who was victorious? The flogger or the floggee? How could they be victorious, these ones who were beaten? Because they, know, they knew that their, their life was not in their work, it was not in their beauty, it was not in their breath. Their life was in Christ. And so they said, ah, we're able to show, as we take this beating, the worth of Christ. 
the value of Christ. As they beat us, we're able to say, look at how much we love Christ. Look at how much he's worth. He's worth our very lives. Beat the tar out of us. And we'll remain faithful to him. And so they left, not saying, oh, this was a bad day. Not saying, oh, my life is over now. Not saying, oh, look at the scars on my face or the scars on my back. I'll never get another date. They never, never thought about that kind of thing. They never thought, what about my job? What about, what about our livelihood? They thought, oh, we've been counted worthy to suffer for Christ. And then they went out from house to house. I don't know exactly what that meant, whether it meant every Christian house or every house on the block. Whatever it means, it means they were not ashamed of the gospel. It meant they went from house to house and they told people about Jesus. You get a sense that they, they nudged each other and they said, let's not let this opportunity pass by. All right? Let's clean up a little bit so we don't freak people out. Let's clean up a little bit, but let's go and let's tell them about Jesus. And Luke is saying, don't worry, church. If what you're really concerned about, which is what we really should be concerned about, whether we're going to fulfill our calling as witnesses of Christ, God is saying, don't worry, nothing can come against you. But you must be a people for whom Christ is your life. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, uh, old dead guy from the 19th century, wrote a piece on um, the ornithologist uh, John James Audubon, another mid-18th century person. And he writes this. He says, You may perhaps have read the life of Audubon, the celebrated American naturalist. He spent the major part of his life in preparing a very valuable work on birds, on the birds of America. He tracked these birds into their remotest haunts, painted them from nature, lived in cane breaks, swamps and prairies, exposed to all kinds of dangers, and all simply to become a complete uh, ornithologist. When he was in Paris, collecting subscriptions for his new work, his dairy was full of wretchedness. There was nothing in Paris for him. And the only bright dream that he had was when he saw stock pigeons building their nests in the garden. The broad streets, the magnificent palaces, the pictures of the Louvre, they were all nothing to him. Stock pigeons, everything. Now there's more to this story, but I don't want you to miss it. That is to say, he was in Paris. What would you say if somebody came and said, I'm going to give you a month in Paris, all paid, enjoy. You'd go, that's life. Okay, this is really living. Well, that sort of happened to Audubon. He was on business, but, but he was there in Paris... And he says, I hate this place. And then he saw some pigeons. And he said, get me some popcorn. This is great. This is life. Now, why is it he could say that? It was because of who he was. It was because of the passion of his own heart. Next paragraph. He came to London, and it was equally dull there. (laughs) Not a single incident shows a comfortable frame of mind until he sees one day a flock of wild geese passing over the city. He wrote in a London paper on birds and he says, while I was writing, I think I hear the rustle of wings of pigeons in the backwoods of America. The man's soul was full of birds, nothing but birds. And of course, he became a great naturalist. He lived and was willing to die for birds. Spurgeon goes on to say this. 
We need to muster a band of ministers, believers, who live only for Christ and desire nothing but opportunities for promoting his glory, opportunities for spreading his truth, opportunities for winning by power those whom Jesus has redeemed and by his precious blood, men of one idea. These are they that shall do great exploits. As I read this passage, my one prayer is this, that my life would be Christ. My passion would be for his glory and his glory alone. Let's pray, Father in heaven. I pray for me and for us that we would know this passion, we would know this one idea, we would know this single-mindedness. You know, God, the opposition for us is not prison. It's, it's not getting beaten. It's the cares of Paris and the beauty of London. The ease of life that is right at our fingertips the control that we can have over seemingly everything. I pray that you would work in us what is necessary, that none of this would be temptation for us, at least, that it would deter us from seeing Christ and desiring him to be known. Father, your care for us is amazing. There's been no people to know blessing like this in all of history, I suspect. I pray it not be our opposition. I pray it not thwart the witness of the gospel. I pray that Christ would be our life our sights would be upon him, glorifying him, witnessing of him, seeing others come to know him and trust him and love him would be the one thrill of our soul. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. <clears throat> The response to our benediction this morning is this. The gospel will triumph. Hallelujah. Now, the hallelujah part means that's really what I want of all things. Of all things. What I really want is that the gospel will triumph. No matter what else happens, arrest, release, beaten, whatever else happens, what really thrills my soul, the hallelujah part, is that the gospel will triumph. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now to him, who is able to do immeasurably more than we get or ask or imagine through his power that is at work within us, can be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, the gospel will triumph. Hallelujah.